Hello folks, and welcome back to the cosy fireside of the Great Library of Dreams. Come on in, dear friends. Take a seat. Well, spring is finally here, and there's a promise of summer in the air. Many of us are looking forward to getting out and about and maybe doing some pottering in the garden. Certainly it's nice to have lighter nights and to be able to have one's window open on an evening again. However, such things can have their hazards. As we'll hear in our latest delve into the casebook of Mr. Flaxman Lowe, with the tale of some curious and indeed lethal events that will bring a chill the most balmiest of evenings. The Story of the Grey House by E. and H. Heron Mr. Flaxman Lowe declares that only on one occasion has he undertaken, unasked, the solving of a psychical mystery. To that case, he always refers to the Affair of the Grey House. The house bears a different name in the annals of more than one scientific society, and much controversy has raged over the strange details of a story that seems to open up a new province of fantastic horror. Papers and treaties have been written about it in almost every European language, and many dismaying facts of a somewhat analogous nature have been thus brought to light. There was some hesitation at first about laying this matter, backed as it is by an explanation, which, though terrible, is not altogether unsupported, before the public. But it has finally been decided to incorporate it into the present series. During the dry summer of 1893, Mr Lowe happened to be staying in a lonely village on the coast of Devon. He was deeply immersed in some antiquarian work connected with the old Norse calendars, and therefore limited his acquaintance in the neighbourhood to one individual, a Dr Freymantle, who, besides being a medical man, was a botanist of some note. One afternoon, when driving together, Mr Lowe and Dr Freymantle passed through a valley which nestled cup-like in the higher ground a few miles inland. As they passed along a deep, steep lane with overhanging hedges, they caught a glimpse, through a break in the leaves, of a grey gable peeping out between the horizontal branches of a cedar. Flaxman Lowe remarked upon it to his companion. That's young Montessian's house, replied Freymantle, and it bears a very sinister reputation. Nothing in your line, though, with a smile. 
Indeed, no ghost would lend the same hideous associations to the place it now possesses as the result of a succession of mysterious murders that have been committed there. The grounds seem neglected. I don't remember to have seen such rank growth anywhere. Certainly not inside the British Isles, returned Fremantle. The estate is left to take care of itself, partly because Montession won't live there, and partly because it's impossible to find labourers to work near the house. A warm, damp climate and this sheltered position give rise to extraordinary luxuriance of growth. A stream runs along the bottom, and I expect all the low-lying land, where you see that belt of yellow African grass is little better than a morass now. Fremantle drew up as they gained the top of the slope. From there they could overlook the tangle of vegetation, dimmed by a rising mist, which surrounded and almost hid the roof of the grey house. Yes, said Fremantle, in answer to an observation of Mr. Lowe. Montesson's guardian, who lived here and looked after the property for him, turned the place into a subtropical garden. It used to be one of my chief pleasures to wander about here. But since my marriage, my wife objects to my doing so, on account of the tales she has heard. What is the danger? Death, replied Fremantle shortly. What form of death? Malaria? Don't it seize at all, my dear fellow. The persons who die at the grey house are hanged by the neck until they are dead. Hanged? repeated Flaxman Low in surprise. Yes, hanged. Not only strangled, but suspended, as the marks on their neck show. If there were any hint of a ghost in it, you might investigate. Montesson would only be too grateful if you could fathom the mystery. Tell me something more definite. I'll tell you what happened in my own knowledge. Montession's father died some fifteen years ago, and left him to the guardianship of a cousin called Lampert, who, as I told you, was a horticulturalist, and planted the place with a wonderful variety of foreign shrubs and flowers. Lampert had a bad name in the county, and his appearance was certainly against him, a squint-eyed, pig-faced fellow who sidled along like a crab, and could not look at you in the face. He died suddenly. Was he hanged, or did he hang himself? Neither in this case. He dropped in a kind of a fit, right up in front of the house, while he was engaged in planting some new acquisition. Had it not been for the evidence of the persons who were present at the time, I should have said his death resulted from some tremendous mental shock. But his relation, Mrs. Montesson, and the gardener agreed in saying that he was not exerting himself unduly, and he had had no disturbing news. He was a healthy man, and I could see no sufficient reason for his death. He was simply gardening, and had apparently pricked himself with a nail, for he had a spot of blood upon his forefinger. After that all went well for a couple of years, when, during the summer holidays, the trouble began. Montesson must have been about sixteen at the time, and had a tutor with him. His mother and sister, a pretty girl rather older than himself, were also here. One morning the girl was found lying on the gravel under her window, quite dead. I was sent for, and upon examination, discovered the extraordinary fact that she had been hanged. Murder? Of course, though we could find no trace of the murderer. 
the girl had been taken from her bedroom and hanged, and the rope was removed, and she was thrown in a heap under a window. The crime caused a tremendous sensation in the neighbourhood, and the police were busy for a long time, but nothing came of their inquiries. About a fortnight later, Platt, the tutor, sat up smoking at the open study window. In the morning he was found lying out over the sill. There could be no mistake as to how he met his death, for in addition to the deep line round his throat, his neck was broken as neatly as they could have done it at Newgate, as in the other case there was nothing to show how he came by his death. No rope, no trace of footsteps or any struggle to lead one to suspect the presence of another person or persons. Yet, from the facts, it could not have been suicide. I see you have some suspicion of your own, said Flaxman Low. Well, yes, I had. But the time has passed, and I now think I must have been mistaken. I must explain that the branches of the cedar you saw jut to within a few feet of the windows of the rooms occupied by Miss Montesson and Platt respectively at the time of death. I told you there were no traces of anyone having approached the house. It therefore struck me that some active person might have leaped from the cedar into the open window and escaped in the same way, for the windows open vertically, and when both leaves are thrown back, there is a large aperture. But the murders were so purposeless and disconnected that they suggested irresponsible agency. I recollected Poe's story of the Rue Morgue, where, you remember, the crimes were committed by an orangutan, and it seemed to me possible that Lampert, who was of a morose and strange temper, might, among other things, have secretly imported an ape and turned it loose in the woods. I had a thorough search made in the park and grounds, but we found nothing. I have long ago abandoned the theory. Lowe thought silently over the story for some time. Then he asked for the dates of all three deaths. Fremantle answered categorically, and it appeared that all had taken place about the same season of the year, during summer, in fact. Upon this, Mr. Lowe made an offer to investigate the affair on psychical lines, if Montesson made no objection. In answer to this message, Montesson took the next train down to Devon, and begged to be allowed to accompany Mr. Lowe in his inquiries. Flaxman Lowe quickly saw that Montesson might prove to be a very useful companion. He was a blonde, heavily built man, and plainly possessed of a strong will and temper. Lowe put aside his books and went off at once with Montesson to have a closer look at the grey house while the daylight lasted. It is difficult to give any adequate impression of the teeming exuberance of wild and tangled growth through which they had to cut their way. Young, lush, sappy leafage overlay and half-disguised the dank rottenness of the older vegetation beneath. After wading more than breast-high through the matted reeds, below which the spreading stream was fast reducing the land to a swamp, they emerged into a fairly open space that had once been the lawn round the house. Here brambles and lusty weeds now grew abundantly under the untended trees. Curious shrubs and plants flourished here and there. As they came up, a stoat sneaked away by a narrow footpath, nettle-grown and caked with damp, 
which led past the blackened bushes round the house. Otherwise the place was deserted. Not a leaf seemed to move in the windless heat of the afternoon. The squat grey face of the house was scarred across by a dark-leaved creeper hung with orchid-like red blossoms, a little to the left of which Lowe noticed the cedar mentioned by Dr. Freymantle. Lowe drew up at the weed-twisted sunken little gate that gave upon the lawns and spoke for the first time. Tell me about it and he nodded towards the house. Montesson repeated the story already told, but added further details. From here, went on Montesson, you can see the exact spot where all these things took place. The upper of these two windows, surrounded by the creeper and under the shadow of the cedar, belonged to my sister's room. The lower is that of the study where Platt died. The gravel path below ran the whole length of the house, but is now overgrown. As Freymantle told you of Lawrence? Lowe shook his head. I hate the very sight of the place, said Montesson hoarsely. The mystery and the horror of it all seem in my blood. I can't forget. My mother left on the day of Platt's death and has never been here since. But when I came of age I resolved to make another attempt to live here, meaning to sift the past if I got the chance of doing so. I had the grounds cleared about the house, and after leaving Oxford, came down with a man of my own year, called Lawrence. We spent the Easter vacation here reading, and all went right enough. Meanwhile I had the house examined, thinking there might be a secret entrance or room. But nothing of the kind exists. This house is not haunted. Nothing has ever been seen or heard of a supernatural character. Nothing but the same awful repetition of blind murder. After a few seconds, he resumed. During the following summer, Lawrence came down with me again. One hot evening, we were smoking as we walked up and down the gravel under the windows. It was bright moonlight. I remember the heavy scent of those red flowers. Montesson glanced around him strangely. I went in to fetch a cigar. It took me some minutes to find the box I wanted and to light the cigar. When I came out, Lawrence lay crumpled up as if he had fallen from a height, and he was dead. Round his neck was the same bluish line I had seen in the two other cases. You can understand what it was to leave the man not five minutes before in health and strength and come back to find him dead, hanged to judge from appearances. But, as usual, no trace of rope or struggle or murderer. After some further talk, Mr. Lowe proposed to go into the house. It had evidently been deserted in haste. In the room once occupied by Miss Montesson, her girlish treasure still lay about, dusty, moth-eaten and discoloured. Montesson paused on the threshold. Poor little fan, it's just as she left it, he said hurriedly. The cedar outside threw a gloomy shade into the room, and the fantastic red blossoms drooped motionless in the stagnant air. Was the window open when your sister was found? inquired Lowe, after he had examined the room. Yes, it was hot weather, early in August. The room has not been occupied since. After Platt's affair, I have always avoided this side of the house. 
So it was only by chance Lawrence and I came round to this part of the lawn to smoke. Then we may suppose that the danger, whatever it is, exists on this side of the house only? So it seems, replied Montessor. Your sister was last seen alive in this room? Platt's in the room directly below? And your friend, what of him? Lawrence was lying on the gravel path just under the study window. All of them died under the shadow of the cedar. Did Fremantle give you his idea? Poor Lawrence's death disposed of that theory. No big ape could live in England all those five years in the open, and in any case it must have been seen some time in the interval. I think so, replied Lowe abstractly. Now, as to what we must do to try and get to the meaning of all of this, do you feel equal, considering all you have gone through in this house, do you feel equal to remaining here with me for a night or two? Montessor glanced over his shoulder nervously. Yes, he said. I know my nerves are not as stiff and steady as they should be, but I'll stand by you, especially if you would not find another man about here willing to run the risk. You see, it is not a ghost or any fanciful trouble. It means a real danger. Think it over, Mr. Lowe, before you undertake so hazardous an attempt. Lowe looked into the blue eyes Montessor had fixed upon him. They were weary, anxious eyes and taken in combination with his compressed lips and square chin, told low of the struggle this man constantly endured between his shaken nervous system and the strong will that mastered it. If you'll stand by me, I'll try to get to the bottom of it, said low. I wonder if I should allow you to risk your life in this way, returned Montesson, passing his hand over his prematurely lined forehead. Why not? Besides, it's my own wish. As for risking our lives, it is for the good of mankind. Can't say I see it in that light, said Montesson in surprise. If we lose our lives, it will be in the effort to make another spot of earth clean and wholesome and safe for men to live on. Our duty to the public requires us to run a murderer to earth. Here we have a murderer's power of some subtle kind. Is it not quite as much our duty to destroy it if we can? even at risk to ourselves. The result of this conversation was an arrangement to pass the night at the Grey House. About ten o'clock they set out, intending to follow the path they had, more or less, successfully cleared for themselves in the afternoon. By Flaxman Lowe's advice, Montesson carried a long knife. The night was unusually hot and still, and lit only by a thin moon as they made their way along stumbling over matted weeds and roots, and literally feeling for the path until they came to the little gate by the lawn. There they stopped for a moment to look at the house, standing out among its strange sea of undergrowth, the dim moon low on the horizon, glinting palely upon the windows and over the deserted countryside. As they waited, a night bird hooted and flapped its way across the open. At any moment they might be at hand grips with the mysterious power of death which haunted the place. The warm, lush-scented air and the sinister shadows seemed charged with some ominous influence. As they drew near the house, Lowe perceived a heavy, sweet odour. "'What is it?' he asked. "'It comes from those scarlet flowers,' 
looked unbearable. Lampert imported the thing, replied Montesson irritably. Which room will you spend the night in? asked Lowe as they gained the hall. Montesson hesitated. Have you ever heard the expression grey with fear? he said, laughing in the dark. I'm that. Lowe did not like the laugh. It was only one remove, and at that a very little one, from hysteria. We won't find out much unless we each remain alone, with open windows as they did, said Lowe. Montesson shook himself. No, I suppose not. They were each alone when... Good night, I'll call if anything happens. You must do the same for me. For heaven's sake, don't go to sleep. And remember, added Lowe, to cut anything that touches you with your knife. Then he stood at the study door and listened to Montesson's heavy steps as they passed up the stairs, for he had elected to pass the night in his sister's room. Lowe heard him walk across the floor above and throw wide the window. When Lowe turned into the study and tried to open the window there, he found it impossible to do so. The creeper outside had fastened upon the woodwork, binding the sashes together. But there was one thing left for him to do. He must go outside and stand where Lawrence had stood on the fatal night. He let himself out softly and went round to the south side of the house. There he paced up and down in the shadows for perhaps an hour. In the deceptive iridescent moonlight, a pallid head seemed to wag at him from the gloom below the cedar, but moving toward it, he grasped only the yellow bunched blossom of a giant ragwort. Then he stood still and looked up into the branches above, the gnarled black branches with their fringes of sticky black leaves. Fremantle's theory of the ape passing stealthily among them to spring upon his victims found a sudden horror of possibility in Lowe's mind. He imagined the girl awaking in the brute's cruel hands. Out upon the brooding quiet of the night broke a scream, or rather a roar, a harsh, jagged, pulsating roar that ceased as abruptly as it had began. Without a moment's consideration, Mr. Lowe seized the branch nearest to him and, swinging himself up into the tree, climbed with a frantic effort toward the window of Montesson's room, from which he was almost sure the sound had come. Being an unusually active and athletic man, he leaped from the branch towards the open window and fell headlong in upon the floor. As he did so, something seemed to pass him, something swift and sinuous that might have been a snake, and disappeared out of the window. Remembering a candle on the toilet table, he lit it when he regained his feet, and looked about him. Montesson lay on the floor, crumpled up, as he himself had described Lawrence's position. Lowe recalled this with misgiving as he hurried to his side. A dark smear like blood was on Montesson's cheek, but, though unconscious, he was still alive. Lowe lifted him onto the bed and did what he could to rouse him, but without success. He lay rigid, breathing the slow, almost imperceptible respiration of deep stupor. Lowe was about to go to the window, when the candle suddenly went out, and he was left in the increasing darkness, to all intents alone, to face an unknown, though tangible assailant. Silence had again fallen upon the house, 
that is, the silence of night, and woodlands, and of many-folded leafage, and of things that go by night. He stood by the window and listened. His senses were acute and throbbing. He felt as if he could hear for miles. The scent of the scarlet blossoms rose like deadening fumes into his brain, and he drew away from the window, and feeling strangely spent, threw himself upon a couch. Then he drew out the knife at his belt and strung himself up to watchfulness with an effort. He knew the attack he had to expect would likely come from the direction of the window. He saw the faint swimming moonlight that fell through the leaves and tendrils of the creeper fade slowly away. Probably clouds were coming up over the sky, for that steamy heat was even more oppressive. The low window sill was scarcely more than a foot above the floor, and presently he fancied something was moving along the carpet among the entangling shadows of the leaves. But the darkness was now intensified, and he could not be sure. Montesson's breathing had become quieter. It was the dead hour of the night. Hardly a sound was to be heard. Suddenly, Lowe felt a soft touch upon his knee. His whole consciousness had been so absorbed in the act of listening that this unexpected appeal to another sense startled him. Here and there, rapid, soft and light, the touches passed over his body. It might have been some animal nosing him about in the dark. Then a smooth, cold touch fell upon his cheek. Lowe sprang up and slashed about him in the darkness with his knife. In that instant the thing closed with him, a flexus snaky thing that flung its coils about his limbs and body in one swift spring like a curling whiplash. Flaxman Lowe was all but helpless in the winding grasp of what? The tentacles of some strange creature? Or was it some great snake, this sentient thing that was feeling for his throat? There was not an instant to lose. The knife was pressed against his body. With a violent effort, he drew it sharply, edge outward, against the tightening coils. A spurt of clammy fluid fell upon his hand, and the thing loosed and fell away from him into the stifling gloom. In the morning, Montesson came to himself in one of the lower rooms on the other side of the house. Frey Mansell was beside him. "'What's the matter?' he asked. "'Ah, I remember now. There's Lowe. "'It has beaten us again, Fremantle. "'It is hopeless. I don't know what happened. "'I was not asleep when I found myself seized, lifted up, "'drawn towards the window and strangled by living ropes. "'Look at Lowe,' he went on harshly, raising himself. "'Why, man, you're all over blood.' "'Flaxman Lowe looked down at his hands. "'Looks like it,' he said. It has beaten even you, Low, went on Montesson. There is something much more terrible and tangible than a ghost in this cursed house. See here. He pulled down his collar. A faint bluish circle with suffused dots was drawn around his throat. It is some deadly species of snake, exclaimed Frey Mantle. Low sat down astride a chair thoughtfully. I am sorry to disagree with both of you but I am inclined to think it's not a snake. And on the other hand, I fancy it has a great deal to do with what we may roughly call a ghost. The whole evidence points only one direction. 
You mustn't let your prejudice in favour of psychical problems run away with your reason, said Fremantle dryly. Has a ghost actual palpable power? To go further, was it blood? Montesson, who had been looking at his neck in the glass, turned quickly. It's some horrible thing in nature, something between a snake and an octopus. What do you say to it, Lo? Lo looked up gravely. In spite of Freymantle's objections, the steps from beginning to end are very clear. Freymantle and Montesson exchanged a glance of incredulity. My dear fellow, much learning has warped your mind, said Freymantle with an embarrassed laugh. First of all, continued Lo, we know where all the deaths have occurred. To speak precise, they have all occurred in different places, interposed Freymantle. True, but within a strictly limited area. These slight differences have been material help to me. In all cases, they have occurred in the vicinity of one thing. The cedar, cried Montesson with some excitement. That was my first idea. Now, I refer to the wall. Will you tell me the probable weight of Lawrence and Platt at the date of death? Platt was a small man, perhaps under nine stone. Lawrence, though much taller, was thin and could not have weighed more than eleven. As for poor little Fan, she was only a slip of a girl. Three people have been killed. One has escaped. In what way do you differ from the others, Montesson? asked Lowe. If you mean I'm heavier, I certainly am. I scale something like fifteen. But what has that to do with it? Everything. The coils have evidently not sufficient compressive power to destroy life by strangulation simply. There must be suspension as well. You were simply too heavy for them to tackle. Coils of what? Of this. Lowe held up a tapering reddish-brown tendon or line which had red curved triangular teeth set on it at intervals. The two other men stared at this object. Then Montesson burst out. The creeper on the wall, he said in a tone of disappointment. It couldn't be. Besides, has a plant blood? Let's go and look at it, said Lowe. This creeper has never been cut because it withers away every winter to the ground and grows back again in the spring. Look, here. He took out a knife and cut a leathery shoot. A crimson stain spurted out onto his cuff. The only person, as far as I can gather, who cut this plant was Mr. Lampert in nailing it to the wall. He died of shock when he saw the red stain on his finger, as though he knew something of its deadly properties. But, though stupefying, as your condition last night proved, Montesson, they are not fatal. Even to stupefy, they must get into the blood. Now the deaths have all occurred within reach of the tendrils of this plant and all have happened at the same season of the year, that is to say, at the time when it attains its full annual strength and growth. Another point in favour of Montesson's escape was the dryness of the season. The growth is not quite so good as usual this summer, is it? No, the tendrils are thinner, a good deal thinner and smaller. Just so. Therefore your weight saved you, though you are stupefied by the punctures of the thorns. I feared that, and warned you to use your knife. But the brain of the thing, cried Freymantle. Why, man, has a plant will and knowledge and malevolence? 
Not of itself, as I believe, answered Lo. Perhaps you will prefer to attribute much to the long arm of coincidence. But the explanation I can offer is one that has for ages been held by occultists in other countries. Pythagoras and others have taught that the forms of incarnation change as the soul raises or debases itself during each spell of life. Connect with this the belief of the Brahmins, and, may I add, of various African tribes, that an earthbound spirit, at the moment of a premature or sudden death, may pass into plants or trees of certain species, by virtue of an inherent attraction possessed by these plants for such entities. To go further, it is said that these degraded souls are given intervals during which they have the power of voluntary action to do good or evil, and such action has influence on their future incarnations. What do you mean? What do you intend us to believe? Montesson said, and stopped. It is hard to put into words in these latter days of unbelief, said Lowe, but the evidence goes to show that a man, presumably not a good man, dies a sudden death near this plant, even inoculated with its sap. Fremantle knows this plant to be a Malayan creeper, belonging to a family that possess strange powers and properties. I recall the old story of the upas tree, and more lately still, the murder tree discovered near Colway in East Africa by Herr Boltz. There are other instances. It is incredible, said Frey Mantle, almost angrily. I don't ask you to believe it, said Flaxman Low quietly. I only tell you that such beliefs exist. Montesson could do something towards proving my theory. Let him have the plant destroyed and judge by results. The tendril of the creeper severed by Mr. Lowe in his struggle was presented by him to the authorities at Kew. Mr. Montesson has acted upon Mr. Flaxman Lowe's suggestions. The grey house is now occupied and safe, and it is a strange fact that no plant, not even the hardy ivy, will live where the red-blossomed creeper once grew.
This podcast was produced by Mr. Jim Moon with music from the Eldritch Light Orchestra. If you enjoyed this show, please consider leaving us a review or a rating so other people can find it. If you really like the show, consider buying us a coffee at coffee.com slash hypnagoria or becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash hypnagoria where subscribers can get exclusive new shows every month and access the Patreon's only podcasting vault. For more nonsense, call into our site hypnagoria.com where you can find all manner of essays and articles on the weird and the wonderful plus my other podcasts plus links to YouTube and all the usual social media gubbins This has been a great library of dreams production 